welcome to Able Voice Podcast, where your voice is more than a melody. We're your hosts, Haley and Kim. Hi, I'm Haley Francis Can, a certified music therapist and author living and working in Bermuda. I'm passionate about lots of things, but find my clinical passion in working with older adults, children, and in neurologic rehabilitation. Before moving here, I lived in Canada for 10 years, and that's how I met Kim. Hi, I'm Kimberly Dolan. I'm a certified music therapist and singer-songwriter based in Kingston, Ontario. I work with many people, but my main area of focus is within the realm of mental health care, supporting people of all ages in living a fulfilled and healthy life. Together, we have a practice called Synergy Music Therapy and Wellness Services, with the five core pillars of advocacy, accessibility, building collaborative relationships, improving clinical standardization, and self-exploration. With this podcast, we are on a mission to plant seeds in a growing field through conversations with music therapists and allied professionals in Canada and around the world about their practicing journey and passion for music therapy. We're We're glad glad you're here to join us. Sue Baines is a social activist. She has a Bachelor of Music from the University of Calgary, Honours Bachelor of Music Therapy from Wilfrid Laurier University, a Master of Arts in Music Therapy from New York University, where she applied a feminist framework to music therapy, and a PhD from the University of Limerick, where she studied music therapy and social justice. She is a fellow of the Association for Music and Imagery, trained through the Southeast Institute for Music-Centered Psychotherapy in Atlanta, and is certified by the Canadian Association for Music Therapy. Sue has extensive music therapy experience working with persons with a broad spectrum of physical, emotional, social, and spiritual concerns in a variety of clinical and community settings. She has practiced music therapy in Vancouver since 1994 and taught in the Bachelor of Music Therapy program at Capilano University in North Vancouver since 1997. She works, researches, and publishes on topics in anti-oppressive music therapy with the goal of ending systemic oppression both in music therapy and globally. Without further ado, let's jump right in. Well, we're so excited to have Sue Baines join us for the podcast today. Welcome, Sue, to Able Voice Podcast. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. We are so excited for this conversation because we've had snippets of talks of, you know, inclusive based practices and anti-oppressive music therapy. And I know you've been working on this for years and years and years. So we're excited to get your perspective. But we always like to start by asking our guests to describe their journey to becoming practicing music therapists, because we know that there are so many paths that you can take to get to where you are. So uh, we're interested to know a little bit about how you got to to music therapy. How did you find it? Well, I started with a Bachelor of Music at the University of Calgary, and I was just 17 when I started, so I was unsure what was going to happen with my life. I imagined I would be a high school teacher, but when I graduated at the age of 21, I thought, I'm way too young to go back to high school. And uh, and I had studied a lot of uh, composition and theory, and just I like all aspects of music. Uh, and then I went on and did a bit of master's study in musicology, but I got lonely in the library by myself. And I realized I'm not an academic personality and needed a more social job and a way of being and heard of music therapy. So I went off to Wilfrid Laurier uh, and I graduated there in 1989. The program was very new 
at that time, but had the pleasure of a good cohort, some of whom are still working in music therapy. And John Downs and Cynthia Vandercoy are two that pop into my mind right away. And while I was finishing up, my uh, the supervisor of the program, Dr. Rosemary Fisher, said, I met someone at the World Congress from Manhattan, and they'd like me to send them a student. Would you like to go? And I said, well, that sounds interesting. So off I went to Manhattan. I worked in um, a specialty hospital where I worked in a developmental delay clinic, a skilled nursing facility for people with Huntington's. And then we would go down the street to a therapeutic nursery in Spanish Harlem and work with high-risk mothers and toddlers. So that was very exciting times. And I learned so much about how music therapy works and how it can work with different kinds of people. Uh, and then I, uh, as soon as I finished that, I got a full-time job. It's the only full-time job in music therapy I've ever had. And that was in 1990, 1990? No. Yes, 1990. Um, so while I was at, uh, in New York, I enjoyed uh, theater and art. And I thought, my goodness, there's this great school called New York University just down in the village. I should go check it out and was accepted to do my master's there. So I did my master's while I was working full-time as a music therapist, which is a wonderful way to, to integrate the learning. The uh, classes happened in the evening. I was very busy, um, but it meant the coursework was working right into my work every day. And I was with a cohort of music therapists, working music therapists, so we could discuss our work at the end of the day, which was a great way to, to have a, a seminar. And then I went to work. I worked in Toronto. Um, you know, my visa status eventually disappeared and off I went back to Toronto, but I didn't find much work in those years. Uh, and I was recovering from malaria and I was very, very ill and it's very cold in Toronto. So I chose to pack up my Honda Civic and drive across the country and move to Vancouver. And I've been here ever since. Yeah, I've been here ever since. So I've worked with so many different kinds of people. I was sort of a cradle-to-grave music therapist thinker. I, I'm fascinated by humans and music and what happens. Uh, so just wanted to work with so many different kinds of people. And, and there's people and there's music. And it, it, to me, it feels like a, a very natural and clear line that you know that humans need music any any people I've worked with it's a very small proportion of the population who isn't that interested in music and if they're not I'm like good enjoy what you enjoy it's not it's not no business of mine but uh so many people music is a friend for life and part of their existence and so it just is a natural way to work with people for for health and well-being so after I'd been working and working my master's theory, which was basically a sociocultural political analysis of music therapy or a feminist framing of music therapy. My older sister, Donna Baines, um, was working in the, a new way of working in social work called anti-oppressive practice. And so she published her first paper in that in the early 90s. And it's been a topic of conversation in, in our conversations for decades at this point. And I was working away and I wrote some articles because I want to change the world. And as a practicing music therapist, publishing seemed like my easiest access to music therapists. Dr. Jane Edwards at the University of Limerick read one of my articles and got some of her students reading it. And uh, I was invited to come over and teach for a week in the Masters of Music Therapy program at the University of Limerick. 
And while I was there, um, Dr. Jane Edwards asked me had I considered PhD studies and uh, that they could make it attractive for me. And I thought, oh, goodness gracious, someone's inviting me to come to a PhD, someone who I really respect. And I felt if Dr. Jane thought I had the right stuff, then I had the right stuff. I could put it together. And my PhD was such a joy to to really focus in on this practice I'd had for many years. And what were those features that went across practice that matter in creating a more socially just world and a more socially just music therapy? I love that phrasing, a more socially just music therapy. I think that's what we need to be focused a lot on. Yeah, it's, you said you've, you've been having this conversation now for decades, but somehow it feels like this conversation is just being attended to in our profession. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree completely. When I was speaking about these ideas in the early days, I was a total maverick. I was just like, people go like, what are you talking about? Um, but I was uncomfortable in my bachelor's degree with the uh, Eurocentric psycho psychology I was expected to think was important. And I don't. I just never have. I, I came up being confused by the world because what I was being told was that I had equity and women, you know, women's time. I came up through the 60s and 70s, so there was a lot of blah, blah about how wonderful our lives were. But my life wasn't like that. My body was treated like a commodity and my brain was treated like it was less than a male brain. And so then to read psychology theories that are so binary in nature that you're either good or you're bad, you're either doing it or you're not doing it. I found um, Freud's theories just ridiculous. I felt they set back women's rights and women's opportunity by, you know, 100 years at least. And Jung's theories frighten me as well. I find them very binary. People say, how do you mean binary? It's so creative. I'm like, but you're still either this or that. You know, <laughs> it doesn't make sense to me. Oh, this idea I should have an animus and an anima inside me. I was like, it's nonsensical. It's just, it's not how I ever felt. So I found the whole thing so frustrating uh, and kept on with my feminist theory and feminist therapy approaches. And for me, it's a great, wonderful time that there's so many more people to talk to that, you know, I have a, a cohort of people that are working hard to 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 look deeply at, at, at our traditions in music therapy and and query them, you know, interrogate why why is this the way we're doing this? And is there another way that is is more respectful and, and can create equity? But the the idea of equity, I think that one is still very misunderstood. And I that's something I think we need to think about a lot. Uh, I think it is a white supremacist idea that things are equal. And I think that we need equity where there's um, people who have been marginalized or marginalized voices have a chance to be the loudest voice and and others of us need to shut up as I talk on and on. <laughs> yeah, I, I completely agree with you, Sue. I think the concept of equality versus equity has been talked about quite a bit, but still very misunderstood to a lot of people. And I think we're, we're in a cusp of time where you're right. Some of us do need to just kind of zip it a little bit more and really tune into to listening. And I'm really excited that that your voice and there are other voices who do 
advocate for anti-oppressive practice and who are heavily invested in it because it's something that needs to come out more. We need to talk about it more. We need to understand it more. And like you said, we need to be able to have those people who can support others and having their voices be heard in a world where um, oftentimes that's not as accessible as it should be. Yeah, feminism um, loves the, the, we talked about power a lot. And feminism has had its missteps along the way, for goodness sakes. And it was, it was a very white feminism. And then, oh gosh, that black women, you know, kind of got loud enough that we went, oh, we better shut up and listen to the black women, the Latina women, women who are disabled by our culture, uh, trans women, you know, so we've had a lot of uh, along the way, but I think feminism is a, is a good model to look at because we have had missteps and we go, oh, we were horrible. Let's fix it. Not Oh, we're right still. We continue to be right. So I think it's it's a developing theory. And there are branches of feminism that I have to just say you're nuts. Uh, Anti-trans women feminism is like, what? How could that possibly make any sense? So, you know, there's still aspects that don't make sense to me. But um, feminism said that power is stretchy, that we can stretch it between us. And I love that idea. So it doesn't one one doesn't need to be dominant over another, and that that you know that we are interlinked like a spider's web. It's just we all are connected, and we can stretch power between us. And and in anti-oppressive practice, one of the tenets is if I have been offered power by our our culture, then I need to use that power to support marginalized people. So I want to give you a good story about that. Uh, it's a story from my sister's practice. Amazingly, the two of us ended up living in New York City at the same time. That's just where, you know, synchronicity happens, and it's it's a beautiful thing. And she's a social worker, and she took a job at a public hospital in the Bronx called Lincoln Memorial Hospital. And uh, she worked in infant crisis, infant emergencies. So she uh, one day she gets a call from one of her uh, mummies. A black woman who has a little child who's gone home with a bunch of electric equipment. And in New York, a lot of the buildings, for some reason, seem to be two buildings side by side on the same power. So the building next door they were going to demolish, and they turned off the power, and it turned off the power in her building. And she had called, and she had pushed, and she had shoved, and nothing had happened. And so she called her social worker. And Donna gave her ideas. Well, try this. Well, try that. Which is, you know, that's the idea of empowerment. I'll give you ideas. And the woman responded, look, you stupid white honky bitch. Uh, you know, you need to call them with your lady lawyer voice and get the power turned back on. So Donna did, you know, with her with her university talk, uh, could get that power back on I- immediately. And that's where we need to use our power, where we can where we can make a change. And then just get out of the way. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting, as well as, you know, that kind of exchange was one that wasn't even a visual representation, like face to face conversation with somebody, it was over the phone, and kind of an interpretation of how somebody sounds is going to influence my decision on how I act. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, as somebody who is brown (laughs) that is also something I can totally relate to on a number of levels in certain spaces 
as many people do, I think we switch back and forth between kind of a colloquial conversationalist style um, into a more educated vernacular, if you will, <laughs> in certain instances. Like if I'm going to give a presentation, I make sure that I'm using diction <laughs> as best I can, or that if I'm presenting over Zoom, that I have um, subtitles and captions so that, you know, it's more accessible to everybody, just in case I get a little bit too comfortable and my colloquialisms come out or my accent, because I'm from a different culture, comes out and wanting to make everybody else in the room feel comfortable. And there's lots of conversation right now that I'm not sure which side of the fence I'm on because I quite like having that diversity within myself and I own that, but I know there are a lot of people that feel very strongly about not feeling like they shouldn't have to change the way that they talk in their native tongue in order to communicate and sound, you know, professional in certain spaces. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's hard to know. It is very colonial to expect everyone to speak the way I do. Uh, and I have a university educated way of speaking. I can also speak New York street, which I won't do on your podcast, but it was the only way to get anything done in New York. You had to use language that my mother would slap me upside the head for. Um, and accents, this sort of flat Midwest accent that we all take on when we, we are reporting and Yeah, so I think that, and to be understood, so it's confusing. I work in long-term care, which we have, um, we have a a vernacular there that we use that everyone can understand. And it it includes words from lots of different languages at different times, um, and uh, usually verbs and nouns to get your meaning across, and yeah, so I, I'm fascinated by language and what language means. Uh, Judith Butler did some wonderful writing around how we perform ourselves and how we use our language to do that. I, I think there's great value in what you said, Haley. I, you know, I live in the land of white Canada. And when I have attended a, a conference presentation from someone who is not a white Canadian with another white Canadian, often the conversation is how that person spoke they spoke and it's like, well, not everybody sounds like us. <laughs> That's part yeah. of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think it's a novelty that sometimes is, gets picked out and overshadows the content of what somebody was saying. I feel like it's just something that we need to get used to, that not everybody sounds the same. And we can mm-hmm. do that by spending time learning about other cultures or being with other people that are not like us, that don't talk like us, that don't, you know, speak with the same intonation or the same colloquialisms. I could go on and on (laughs) probably about that. I think language is very central and the way that we understand and interact with language is very central to our understanding of equity in, in terms of the language that we're using to describe what we're experiencing within our world, but also the way that we're interpreting what's happening and the comprehension that's happening and sometimes can get lost. I think we need to have a bit of an open-ended compassion and understanding that not everybody 
is the same. And maybe I'm interpreting something wrong, um, but maybe you can teach me something that I didn't know. And it's, it's just a beautiful thing. I see it as a beautiful thing. Now I'm going on and on because it's something that I'm really excited about. I love having conversations with people and in conversations that get a little heated due to maybe a miscommunication or misunderstanding. I love those moments because I like to be an, an active listener wanting to understand what they're trying to communicate with me. But also, if allowed the opportunity by someone who is wanting to, to be compassionate in that space because we are met with people that are not ready for that, then I, I take that as an opportunity to teach. And it's, it's great that we're able to challenge each other in that way right now because of conversations like this that are happening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Another thing that popped into my mind is that accents are in a hierarchy as well. Um, when I was going to University of Calgary, some of the music professors had slight English accents, although they'd never lived in England. It was just sort of snooty classical music talk. And that definitely people with indigenous accents are people assume they're not smart. People speak slower and more deliberately. I appreciate that. It slows down my speech. People with accents from India are not treated with the same regard as people with accents from Scotland. So there's there's still all those pieces of, of equity, even in, in that, let alone having the right words speaking it with a certain um, way of speaking. So there is so much work to be done. I'm really, really excited to see more partners. Haley, I was so excited to see your your work that you've done in, in uh, anti-oppressive practice and music therapy. Yeah, it's, it's so exciting. Like you were talking a little bit earlier about how you, in your, was either your PhD or your master's, you had a cohort of therapists that you were working with. It's now exciting to see kind of a cohort of therapists that are embracing anti-oppressive practice. And now what you've termed anti-oppressive music therapy. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Mm-hmm. So when I wrote, uh, it was in my master's, I had a cohort, but I had a cohort in my PhD. I was very lucky. When I was starting to write my PhD, I had all these ideas that had been roaring around in my head for about 20 years. Um, It was like I wanted to cook a meal and I went to the cupboard and I had everything. And I thought, oh dear, what will I cook my meal out of? You know, what will it really look like? And so the first paper out of my PhD, I wrote it in the first year, was called Music Therapy as an Anti-Oppressive Practice. And I was exploring how could music therapy be an anti-oppressive practice? So I looked at the way we're educated and I think that we need to do a big overhaul of our educational system. It's it's just out of date, our pedagogy and our curriculum. And I looked at the way we practice and critiqued some of our models of practice as being very directed by the therapist, even though they say they're client-directed, they don't feel client-directed because the therapist says, you need to do music therapy in this way or it's not music therapy. So that, that seems very odd to me as well. And I recommend that music therapists get broadly trained So if someone wants to lie on the ground and listen to classical music and have you support them through that process, you know how to do that. And if someone prefers to have a conversation on percussion instruments, you know how to do that. 
And if they prefer to write songs, you know how to do that. And that you, we don't narrow that, oh, I only do this kind of music therapy. I don't think that's helpful to to the the participants of music therapy at all. Music therapy is an anti-oppressive practice. I put that out and then people started writing, citing that paper. So I read everything that people cited. It's been cited so many times. Uh, it's been cited outside of music therapy as well as a, a lot in music therapy. And the citations were balanced between theory-based papers and practice-based papers. And that made me so happy. I thought, yes, you can use this practically and you can also theorize about it. So it felt like it had been out there long enough and it was time to to call it a theory and an approach and a method, all those kinds of things. Uh, and that's why I wrote the most recent article in 2021 that was published in Arts and Psychotherapy and it's called uh, Anti-Oppressive Music Therapy. I'm just claiming what that space would look like and it's the way I've claimed it and I'm very honest about, there will be a lot more writing and then it will be a fuller theory. This is a lot of my ideas. I, I also put out a term, critical music therapy which I think uh, can be very valuable to us as well as we coalesce under this umbrella of anti-oppressive music therapy, uh, queer music therapy, and post-ableist music therapy, resource-oriented music therapy, I think fits in there, and, and, and other things, social music therapy coming out of Brazil, they have some great ideas, so that they would fit under this umbrella or uh, as critical music therapy theory. That's really exciting for for the field because you're right it is it is this whole theory but it can be applied practically and and it sounds like we're still kind of even though you've been exploring it for for quite some time now it still has so much room to grow and so much room to mm -hmm. um, to converse in and you said something um, when you were talking about the broad training or being able to explore different instruments or different modalities or different components of it that really resonated with me because I feel like in my education I was often told you need to specialize or you need to to know what it is that you're really good at and I've always been drawn to a little bit more of an eclectic approach because I have a hard time I have a hard time connecting with well I'm only going to do this this exact way all of the time because people are so unique and people are so different and I agree. I think it's important for us to continue to add different tools to our practice and be very clear, be very clear on our approaches and what those skill sets are, but being open to listening to what our participants are bringing into the space as well and being able to be flexible in that moment so that we're not putting them in a box, as you said, of this is music therapy and this is the only way we'll do it regardless of X, Y, Z. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, totally. And and I think that if you only do it a certain way, like, for example, there are people who are NICU music therapists, they need such a specific set of information. So yes, that's, that's what they do. But if you're going to work with um, a wide variety of people, then then I think we need to be trained broadly, that it, if we're going to be what's called client centered, I, I don't like the word client either, but if we're going to be music therapy participant centered, then we need to do, I think that I've worked in long-term care for 30 years, a very long time. And over those years, I've noticed that people access music in their own way. I have met the dancers that when you play music, they get up and down. And then the, the listeners who, when you play music, they close their eyes and listen. Um, then there's people who like to sing and play at the same time, or people who just like to play or just like to sing. 
and through observing this big, big crowd of older people for many, many years, that's really where my ideas come from, that we need to offer a wide variety of things until people glom into that's their thing. They may not know what their thing is yet. Working with people who have dementia, their brain knows what their thing is, even though they may not know a lot of other things. Their brain knows how they like to access music best. That was beautifully, a beautiful painted picture (laughs) you just told to us. I think absolutely, 100%. I think my mind is going in a bunch of different directions of of what I could say (laughs) because I have so many ideas also working in long-term care for majority of my career to this point. I have seen exactly that. You know, it's a skill that we as music therapists develop within that space is to be adaptable to what they're bringing to you and being really responsive to what it is they're wanting to offer you in that moment and validating that response through our particular skill set. There's a little bit of growth and challenge that happens when when you first get started in long-term care. I think, you know, if you're just coming out of school, you have like Kim said, we're trained to have these specific kind of this regimen that we follow as as music therapists. But it really gets challenged when you are thrown into a long-term care environment. I can also think of like if you're if you're thrown into um, working with a group of, of children that are on the spectrum, like all of these are just going to really challenge that plan that you've set out for yourself, um, the particular way that you're expecting they might respond to a certain activity. You just, you never know. And so it's good to be open and not to close yourself in and therefore also closing the music therapy participant in to that space with you as well. I wrote a blog post two years ago now, I think, or maybe, I don't know, time is kind of a relative concept at this point. (laughs) I think we've been constantly in 2020 for like ever, and it's 2021. (laughs) So I wrote a blog post uh, about when I first started in in long-term care, I had a very challenging transition because I didn't get a lot of practicum experience in long-term care when I was a student. And so when I went to do my internship, it was the first time that I was kind of thrown into that world for most of the week. I, what I, what I observed in myself is that I really attend to rhythm in a different way than the, the people that I was working with attend to rhythm. And um, so for me, that was a big culture shift that I had to make as a therapist and and I tell that story often, even when supervising interns, because, you know, we as musicians, we're kind of musicians first. And we have this sort of connection to the way music makes us feel and the way that we feel music. But sometimes we have to be challenged outside of the comfort of what is our style of music, what we like to play, in order to best meet the needs that our clients are presenting to us, our music therapy participants are presenting to us. And that's okay. It doesn't mean that we lose ourselves. It means that we are meeting somebody where they are. And that's the intent of what we're there for is to connect with that person and to provide opportunities of empowerment 
and validation and support for that individual, for that group. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it does take you outside your comfort zone. I, I worked with a guy, he liked scream metal and scream metal was hard for me. You know, I could do half an hour. We made a deal. <laughs> but he needed it. You know, he had William syndrome and he had trouble expressing anger and he had a lot of anger. So scream metal was a, he, he'd chosen the right music for himself. And then he'd want to sing like, Take me home, country roads, and leave not a jet player. That was lovely. I was like, okay, then we can do that part. So many different kinds of music. I worked in youth custody. It was it was all rap and gangster rap and stuff until I convinced them that there was other kinds of rap that was really interesting and to check it out. Yeah, and I, I really enjoy learning about different kinds of music. In long term care, we are living in the colonial world, so we tend to play colonial music most of the time. I developed a Chinese music hour where I work uh, with the help of Chinese workers in the building. I, uh, an intern set it up at the beginning, but we need more. And so the head of the uh, kitchen, she's Chinese. And so our new chaplain is Chinese Canadian. So they, they're helping me with this. And I, uh, it's a YouTube program, but I can, I can share it with people and they can point at what they want to hear. And, and then we have an hour of Chinese music in this home. And I think it helps everybody feel like, oh, this home is interested in lots of cultures, not just the Euro culture that we all have to speak English in our home. It's an expectation. Yeah, I really love that. That sounds like such an exciting project to get to to learn so much in what you're doing. And then also, yeah, shifting the experience of those individuals living in that home, including the staff and including perhaps those those participants who don't get to hear that is is more central to their culture or others who've never heard that kind of music to learn new things. Um, and I, I think in long-term care, sometimes we we shy away from that learning new new music. Sometimes people say, well, no, you have to play the 50s and 60s exactly uh, like this um, because that's what they'll be able to reminisce to, which is absolutely true. But there's still, like, we're all still learning beings and there's something exciting about being able to share different music or different experiences or things that we can converse about and continue to, yeah, continue to explore. Mm-hmm. Oh, I also, along those same lines, Haley, you said that it doesn't mean we lose ourselves, which hit me in the heart a little bit, because I think sometimes when we're planning for sessions or when we're challenged as therapists, because like you said, we're not connecting or attending to rhythm the same way, or we really don't jive with a certain type of a genre of music. And we're challenged to step outside of that comfort zone to learn to support those individuals. It can be, um, it can be it can be difficult, but it can also be really exciting. And so I think there's this neat balance of, Sue, you had mentioned, you know, I can I can give you half an hour for this specific genre because it's, it's not something that you naturally connect to. And I think there's this interesting balance of, yes, we will challenge ourselves. We're not losing ourselves. If anything, we're expanding ourselves and our horizons and what we perceive and experience in the world. But we're also humans and we're also therapists and we have things that are challenging for us, are exciting for us, really don't jive in the moment. And sometimes we have to be able to recognize, okay, what is that boundary? Is that going to interfere with me being able to be the support or the the partner in music therapy that I can be right now if it's something that's perhaps triggering or challenging for you as a therapist as well? That's exactly how it felt. I tried really hard 
but I would feel myself going into a trance. I and I don't trance; it's not my thing. Uh, so I just feel my brain just going into this. And I thought, I'm not present enough to be a music therapist. I have to somehow be present. And I wondered what it might be doing to with to the participant's brain. You know, so it was I think it was helpful for a while, but then I would just sort of feel this like almost shutting down experience. I wasn't becoming aware of anything more. I was just going into a dwell. So then I thought, okay, you know, so I asked him, you know, could we do some, because he liked the singing too. So could we do some singing? And then that would help my brain feel all better again. Uh, uh, listening to hardcore rap, it was hard. It was hard, but uh, it was also informative. And it gave talking points to the kids. So then we could talk about homophobia or we could talk about crime and violence or, you know, because it was there. And, and it, I, I thought that was useful. I got, I got, used to get play copies from music stores that there were stuff they couldn't play. So they give them to me and then I could use them with the kids I was working with. Yeah, lots of changes. I've ended up in long-term care. A lot of the reason is, is I love the music. I found working with children, the music drove me crazy. So I really enjoyed working with kids, but I found, again, it wasn't, I know it's not supposed to be for me, but I also have to be able to stay engaged and alert. And I do do music outside the field. I think it's really important for music therapists to join a choir, play in a band, or, you know, make an album if they're a singer-songwriter, or do those things that, that keep their their musical heart uh, growing and, and healing. Because I do get some from work. There's no doubt when I get to play lots of piano and sing some Frank Sinatra. It's really delightful for me. I enjoy that or Anne Murray or whatever it is. I just, I enjoy songs that is always good for my heart, but it's not the same as playing in a band. Playing in a band means I've got a bunch of musicians I'm dealing with and it's a, and I'm not taking care of their feelings. Thank goodness. So it's quite a different, quite a different job. Yeah. <laughs> we, we can wear so many hats in, in the field of music and experience experiencing our musical child and our you know our musical being as we get older and you know even helping to facilitate that to come back out in, in those that might have cognitive challenges so it's really exciting the work that we get to do and how it impacts not only us but the people that are around us and you talked a little bit about healing and primarily still the music that we bring into long-term care being very much centered around colonial music. I wonder, there's a bigger discussion that's happening right now in Canada around healing and colonialism. And you recently were a big part of a statement that the CAMT put out for truth and reconciliation, specifically for the Indigenous uh, Canadian community. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about your connection to that and what inspired you to to put that statement forward? Well, I've, I've been a social activist since I was a teenager. And so that means if you see a problem, you do something about it. I have stayed away from the CMT, CMT other than going to occasional conferences and stuff for a while just because I needed a break. And then I went and looked at the website and I read the things they send out and I saw Black, Black Lives Matter and I thought, well, that's really good. I'm glad that we're making a political statement or a social statement. Yay, I'm glad, you know, that's happening and maybe I'll join a committee someday, I thought. And then I saw one about Stop Asian Hate and I thought, well, that's really, really important too. 
but at the same time, my brain just exploded. Like, what happened to Truth and Reconciliation? Truth and Reconciliation Commission was completed on my birthday in 2015. So I'm very clear on when it finished. It was December 18th, 2015. And 2015 was a long time ago for people who have been waiting for hundreds of years. So uh, I got really upset. And amazingly, about the same time, a colleague who uh, we talked to each other on the phone, Bernadette Caterna from Regina, Saskatchewan, uh, was feeling similar things. And we have had this in the past. And she said, she emailed me, can we have a phone call? And we talked and we went, yes, we're going to do something about this. <laughs> so we, um, we reached out some in, to some Indigenous music therapists we knew in Canada. And Bernadette reached out to the Equity and Diversity Committee. And then uh, we had a meeting with Kimmy, who heads that committee. She's doing a wonderful job and with Bernadette and I. And I think only one of the Indigenous music therapists we'd contacted could tune in at that time. But we were all there in spirit. And I said I would draft something. And the way I drafted it was I went to a lot of different universities because I thought universities should have stuff. And unfortunately, a lot of them don't. So uh, I found a few statements of truth and reconciliation, you know, from social work department here or there. The best one was at UBC because my sister's the director of social work there. And there's a really good uh, statement there. And I, I glommed these statements together and it was really big and cumbersome because I think it's it couldn't be my idea only. So I just put a lot of things and then sent it back to committee and committee rewrote and then uh, committee sent it to indigenous music therapists for their their uh, viewing and seeing if they felt it was good. So that's the first step. I also think we need a statement uh, around the rainbow family, the LGBTQ and uh, two-spirit family. And there's no statement and yet music therapists in the past have tried to fix lesbians and fix, you know, trans children and such. So we need a statement around that. And we're going to make one. I'm going to work on that one now. In reading the Truth and Reconciliation Call to Action, it's very clear what we need to do. And if settlers in Canada are wondering, what should I do? Read them. Read the call to action. It's very clear what's being asked for. And it also, to me, makes total sense. Like, why shouldn't people have these records? And, you know, why shouldn't this be taught in school? And yes, we need to actively recruit Indigenous workers into all aspects of Canadian healthcare, for sure, but also education. Yeah, so we have that voice that's, that's a huge piece of, of this land, this nation state of Canada, as we call it. So I'm, I'm, I'm very behind that. In 2015, when the calls, uh, when the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was completed, I thought, what will I do? And I thought, the first thing I need to do is make some Indigenous friends. So I actively pursued Indigenous friendship through the music community, where I could meet some people and be with people and see what people were really like, not their Facebook persona, but the, the real person there, and learn more about how to behave you know, as, a, as an ally. And, and I'm always learning to be an ally and a better ally a critical ally, critical allyship, we like to call it. So that's been a really important piece. And I encourage people to meet and make friends with Indigenous people and people from cultures that you may feel like you don't know anything about, or maybe you have a certain idea about, but you want to challenge that idea, then then go look, 
for some folks and meet some people. And I think that's the best way to get started. Um, and I do feel comfortable that the position statement we put on the CMT website is something that my friends would, would applaud. Say so thank you very much for getting that done. Um, there's things we need to do now. Now that we have our statement, we need to do things in CMT. Like we may need to make uh, continuing education recommendations and we need to make uh, recommendations to the training programs. And and I think we need to get rid of the managerial model of CMT. I don't like it. I never did. And uh, how we became managerial as music therapists. It's as strange to me as managerial model in social work. It's It's social work. It's not a management system. So uh, there's there's many things that Sue would like to change. If I ran the world, it wouldn't run quite the way it runs. But I am happy, like I say, I'm so happy to be meeting younger people who are doing their own reading, have done their own journey, and, and want to talk about these things and see what, what good changes we can make to make that more socially just future. I tell people I want to end systemic oppression, and they look at me like I'm crazy. And I'm like, well, if you don't say it out loud, how's it going to happen? I want to end systemic oppression. Let's work together to end systemic oppression and end microaggressions. But that comes to the ending of the systemic piece, where we where we look hard at our systems and say, what is going on here? Why is it all? Where I work, much as I appreciate these physical hardworking people, our admin is all white. All of our cleaning staff is not white. Uh, that's about not allowing people to have their degrees when they come here from other countries. That's it's a very colonial educational system. So all those pieces, uh, you know, there's lots of work to be done. When I was young, I imagined things would happen a lot faster than they do. And now that I've had a few decades on the planet, I go, things are moving along. You know, I can see them moving along. <laughs> young people, please do not get disheartened. Work together. It's really important in this work that we do. Uh, I don't like the term self-care because it's been so co-opted by, you know, take a hot bath and you'll be just fine kind of people. But real self-care, this is hard work. You need to do things that will replenish your spirit and heal your heart because, oh my gosh, there's a lot of heartbreak going around. And so we have to take care of our hearts uh, as we as we do this difficult but so important work. Yeah, absolutely, Sue. Thank you for sharing all of that. It's it's really encouraging and inspiring to hear you speak, and hopefully that that motivates and activates um, a lot of people in our community to do the same because it really is about working together because it's it's not something one person can um, accomplish independently. And thank you for sharing about the work to to create the truth and reconciliation statement. I think hearing a little bit of that process can be really beneficial for those of us people listening who aren't really sure where to start sometimes. I think sometimes we hear everything that's going on in the world and want to help or don't know where, but like you said, check out the statements. It's very clear what these calls to action are or where to go next if you're feeling overwhelmed. So I think hearing that process will really give people those clear <laughs> directions. Okay, start here and and take that first step because really that's that's where to start. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> you shared that um, if, if Sue could um, talk about an ideal world, there would be lots and lots of, of pieces or things that we need to get done. Um, and we like to ask this question to, to all of our guests, and I'm sure you've commented on a, a couple of those pieces, but if, if you had your ideal world or for music therapy as a whole, what do you hope 
for the field of music therapy moving forward? Oh, that's a big one. That's a big one, Kim. Um, my hope is is for equity in music therapy. I mean, I would like to see the capitalist system fall. I'd like to, I'd like, you know, if, if we didn't have to deal with the capitalist system, uh, we wouldn't call the people that come and work with us clients. We even call them our clients. It's, it's yeah, it's very uncomfortable to me. I think that the credentialing process that we go through of writing this American exam that has out-of-date theories and information that has nothing to do with what we do as music therapists is is very weird. I don't want us to be doing that anymore or have that revised completely. I think Canada can be a leader in the changes that need to happen. Um, we do have this wonderful document called the Truth and Reconciliation Calls to Action, and they apply to all marginalized voices. You could put any marginalized voice into into the place of Indigenous people in those calls to action and say, yes, we should be doing this for this marginalized voice or that marginalized voice. I would like a world where neurodivergence is respected. A lot of things that music therapists do, continue to do, I think are abusive uh, with people with neurodivergence. Uh, there is no need for people to make eye contact all the time. I just don't get that. People should be allowed to get up and walk around the room when they want to, if that's how they reorganize their thinking and their awareness. So there's, you know, there's many things that you would like to change. I like to see smart young people figuring stuff out and working together. It's it's a collaborative process, and it was just it was a smaller group now, and it's exciting to see that there's there's growth in this part of our field. The walls of Institutions are granite-like, and so making change in institutions is slow. And at Kaplan University, where I teach, we've been talking about indigenizing the academy. Now we're doing it, but it's slow, and we talked about it for quite a while before we started doing it. The things that we can do, here's some other things we can do. We need to contextualize the information that we have. So if we have information about people are this way or that way, who taught us that information and who benefits from that story being told or continuing to be told? And by contextualizing it, for example, when I teach, I teach a developmental part of our class, but I don't like developmental theories. I don't like stage theories. So it's a little complex. But I ask them to consider all the stage theories were written by white supremacists. So when you look at all of them, there's not a single one of the ones that we study at school, whether it's Freud or it's Piaget, or, and they may not identify as white supremacists, but they are white men living in a white man's world, white heterosexual or performing heterosexuality. They all did that. The, the theories come out of that. And so how people are looked to be progressing comes out of this very flawed, abusive, uh, cultural norm of white supremacy. So I, there's a whole bunch within the educational system that needs to shift as well. And, and then we need continuing ed. So I think continuing ed credits in truth and reconciliation, or I don't know what we'll call it. I, I know we're proposing this to the board through the equity committee, but we're still talking about what it would look like. But uh, yeah, Marisol Norris said 
uh, we were having a big Zoom with a bunch of us. And she said, you know, I know we need to change. I'm just, I have no idea what it'll look like. And that's good. That's fine. How would we know what it's good? I, I, I felt really excited by that idea. I have built lots of things when I had no idea what they were going to look like after they were built from. When I first moved to Vancouver, I didn't have work. And so if something was bothering me, I would phone and make a job. So that sounds strange. But I woke up one morning to another report about youth violence and youth crime in the Lower Mainland. And so it was Tuesday, which was my cold call day. Don't cold call on Monday. Nobody answers. But Tuesday's a good day. And I cold called Burnaby Youth Secure Custody Services and spoke to a lovely receptionist who put me onto the director of programs and he asked me to send him a proposal. And I worked there for four years until a new government came to power and you know cut all kinds of interesting programs for kids in custody. But it's if something is concerning you, just do something about it. Make a call. It, and 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 you'd be surprised how easy it is to do once you get started doing it. So the, we have a bit of learned helplessness around this that, oh, nothing will change. and no, It will change. And I, I do feel it's unfortunate that younger people didn't live through the part of my life where things were getting better and things were growing. Our social system was growing and we had arts and culture grants. And, and then we had uh, Reagan and Thatcher in power at the same time. And Brian Mulroney got on that train too. And we went into this thing called austerity, which is their actually hyper-global capitalism. And the middle class has been eroded and young people look at the future going, what can happen? It looks so crappy. We have to work together and make it better again because it can be better. It really can be better. And, and it's not even too far in the past when my taxes went to things I cared about more and I wasn't taxed so hard as a person in my tax bracket because the rich were paying more of their share. So I, I do think that uh, it, it matters who we vote for. It matters who we work in um, grassroots in our own communities. It matters the art that we go see. Um, I went to a wonderful performance last night of piano burning, uh, which has, piano burning has been done many times, uh, but this time it was done with indigenous knowledge and connections. So in many indigenous cultures, including the cultures on the coast here in, in my area, which is Masquee and Tsleil-Waututh and Squamish people, uh, burning something that you deeply value is a way of giving it to the spirit world and knowing you will build it up again. So the piano burning went on uh, with um, art and music from indigenous composer, uh, Russell Wallace composed the piano piece that was played as the piano was set on fire. And it just felt to me, it was so powerful to be there. I love piano. Oh gosh, you know, but I was not concerned at all about them burning up this piano. It felt uh, like a, a symbol of decolonization and uh, a powerful like fire has uh, so many important aspects in so many cultures. And I think that it's it's easy to do. It's just get involved. Don't be afraid. We put on our raincoats and off we went. It was hard to light the piano on fire in the rain, but you know it was so damp. But it got going, and and it's worth it's worth doing. Going to performance art, we can learn a lot from that as well. Yeah, yeah. I kind of love that imagery and that picture of 
there were so many elements fighting against the burning of the piano, but it got done in community and, you know, and, and there were so many uh, people there to support and to feel the impact that mm. had. And I also just really love your message of hope because I do think that, you know, as a millennial, <laughs> there are so many things that we look at the world and go, huh. <laughs> I'm not sure if we're actually going to make a difference here, but we're trying. And so your message of don't lose hope, just keep going, I think is one that a lot of, you know, the podcast listeners will really resonate with and really be needing to hear in this moment in our history. So thank you so much for all of your vision that you have <laughs> and for all of the support that you have of uh, all of us just trying to learn and collaborate together to make this world and this profession, you know, the best that it can be, the um, the most inclusive and equity-based that it can be. Uh, so thank you for all of your work and thank you for, for coming and speaking with us on the podcast. Very happy to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, for me, the bottom line is ethics. If we're going to be ethical, we need to look at the world more broadly than we have been and, and deeply integrate the truth of difference and equity. Thank you for listening to the Able Voice podcast. If you want to hear more episodes like this, subscribe to the podcast and follow us on social media at Synergy Music Therapy. You can also find links to our most recent and top rated episodes on our website at www.synergymusictherapy.com.